let me pray for us, and then we can jump in. Lord God, I thank you for this church, uh, and God, I especially thank you for your son, who we get to come together and worship and read about uh, Sunday after Sunday, and I just pray this morning that your glory would shine forth out of this text. Uh, God, you know how weak and fallible I am, and I just pray, Lord, that your glory would shine forth and be clear to us this morning. Uh, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would move in us and among us uh, and work together to grow our understanding and our love and our commitment to you uh, and just to be a powerful presence of your love in this community. We pray this all in your beautiful name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible and you haven't yet, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. We are picking up our series in John called God in Our Neighborhood, uh, and we'll be picking up in verse 25 and going to the end of the chapter, which you think maybe not, might not be that long, but this chapter is 71 verses long. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. I don't want to beat around the bush uh, because we're just going to be here all day. So uh, we better get moving. In the last two weeks, we saw, uh, we were been in John chapter 6 the last two weeks, and we saw Jesus perform two miracles. The first was the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably more like fifteen or 20,000 people. It says 5,000 men. And Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and a few fish and multiplies them to feed this massive crowd of people. And uh, it's reminiscent of like the feeding of Israel in the wilderness by manna that comes from heaven, if you're familiar with that Old Testament story. And that's actually going to get referenced in our text today. And then the second miracle is the disciples are going across the sea and it gets kind of stormy or windy and wavy. Uh, and uh, Jesus stays behind and then they see Jesus walking on the water uh, to catch up with them, which if I just reading it from my 21st century kind of eyes and context seems like a flex to me, like Jesus is kind of showing off. But in other texts, it says he was meaning to pass by them unseen. So I don't know, it's kind of an interesting story. And he's doing it in the storm, which is well, I guess I said that like the storm is the imp- impressive part of that, which it really isn't. It's the walking on the water. But anyway, he does these two miracles, and well, we got to see how in those stories, John, the author of this book, is calling us, one, to trust God for our needs, and two, to trust God to calm our fears. And uh, both those stories set the background then for the climax of the chapter in today's text that we're going to get into, and that involves an interaction between Jesus and some of that crowd that he fed, who follow him across the river, or across the, the big lake or sea in some boats, uh, and find him on the other side. And that's where we pick up. So there's a lot here, uh, and it's a lot for us to cover, but it's all one episode. And so it's kind of hard to break up, and so that's why we've put it all in one week. Uh, and so that said, there's just so much. We're not going to be able to just dive really deep into every single word, every single verse, uh, but look at more of kind of like an overview of it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm really excited for uh, just what we're going to see here. And so... I don't want to take too long, so the big idea of the text today is Jesus continually offers us true life. And I just want to tell the story, so I'll be working through five points that are around what we need, and I'll just I'll list those as we get to them, uh, but they're around what we need, what Jesus offers us, and the various ways that we respond to that. And so we'll break it up into five points. So with that, point number one is this. We have way more needs than we think we do. We have way more needs than we think we do. Amen, I got it. Very good. So some of the crowds that Jesus fed, they just have found him on the other side of the sea that he's crossed, right? And that's where this picks up. So verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs or miracles, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, talking back to the feeding of the 5,000. Man, he knows their hearts. 
So it's verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, which is to say that God the Father has given him his authority to act uh, in his place. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Because Jesus just said to them, you know, work for the food that endures to eternal life. So verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, or what miracle do you do, that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Now these are the same people who just saw the miracle where he multiplied the bread. Keep that in mind. Verse 31, they say, Our fathers... This is a reference to the Old Testament now. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're referencing this miraculous provision of bread for Israel in the Old Testament, and they want another miracle, right? And it's becoming increasingly clear that they really seem to want more bread, like Jesus just said. They're seeking him for the bread. And so I just want to pause here and ask a quick question for the parents in the room, because I honestly don't know the answer. Uh, for those of you who have kids, at what age do your kids start learning how to and trying to manipulate you? When does that start? Is that like as soon as they can talk? What's birth? Birth. But I, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of like as soon as they're able to like use words and they're like they're trying to think about like how, you know, with what can I say? Like remember last time we ordered pizza, like how easy that was? Like maybe if we just did that again, you wouldn't have to work away and make dinner or, or things like that or, or pit the parents against each other and say, well, mommy said like this. And, and you can kind of see the gears turning like in their heads. Like they're not very good at it yet. They're just learning, right? Kind of like the first lies they try to tell. I think that's a little bit of what's going on here where they're like, so, okay, so you need us to believe in you. Well, what miracle do you perform? And in case you need a suggestion, like our fathers, you know, they, God, you know, uh, Moses or God sent them, you know, manna in the wilderness. So maybe, if, I don't know, if you want to make some more bread for us is kind of what they're getting at. And so basically, they, they want more bread, they want more proof. They're not really ready to commit to whatever Jesus is talking about, this, this true bread, this bread that endures to eternal life. So, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Apparently, that's what they thought. But he says, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's turning their attention away from this story of manna in the wilderness, and hopefully away from physical, literal bread, and away to what he wants them to be asking about, what he wants to show them, which is what he's calling true bread from heaven. That he's saying, my father is trying to, wants to give to you now. Right? He's saying, I'm talking about the true bread that my father will give to you. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So they're like, all right, that sounds good. We'll take that bread as long as it's bread. I just, I really relate to this passage. I've really been, I don't know about you guys, I've really been there. So, all right, so let's pause here, right? So a bunch of people from the crowds that Jesus just fed, they're chasing him down, they're looking for more free bread. And Jesus is trying to redirect their attention to what he's calling true bread, which will give them eternal life. And then also from what we read, we see that to receive this true bread, all they need to do is to believe in and accept the Son of God, or in this case, we that to be Jesus as the Messiah or the saving king that God sent to them. Right? But the people are not seeing it. They're not getting it. They're fixated on literal bread. 
So God is offering them eternal life, and they can't see that because they're stuck on the bread. And I just want to ask, can anyone relate to that like me? Have you ever been stuck on something where it's just like, this is just what your, head, your mind is on, right? Whatever that is, different stages of your life, that's probably different things. Sometimes for kids, it's like Christmas or birthday presents or something like that. Sometimes for adults, it's like, or maybe if you're in college, it's like an exam or a deadline you have to get past. Or if you're, you know, beyond that, it's like, career opportunities or promotions or deadlines or things like this, or maybe it's certain things with family life, like the next vacation, or when school you know, stops, or when school starts, or whatever that's going to be. Um, we have this tendency to get stuck on things just like we see in this passage, right? And this, the tragedy of that is that, kind of like we're seeing in the passage, that there, it may be the case that God wants to show us something, and yet we are constantly turning our attention away from that because of this thing we're fixated on. Right? And we can't enjoy the greater thing that he would want to give us. And so what's the narrative here for these people? For these people, it's this. I'm hungry. What I need right now is some bread. If I got some bread, all would be well in the world. That's what I need. That's, that's the narrative. For us, it's if I could just have this thing, or if I could just get past this deadline, or if I could just change this one fact about my life, everything would be great. Life would be great But when Jesus looks at those things and then looks at all the things and all the blessings that he has stored up for us, those things that we're fixated on, to him, those are nothing compared to the other needs that we have. When he thinks about what you were designed for, what you were created for, all that he had planned for you before sin comes in and disrupts that, then he sees your need as so much greater then whatever these things are that we're fixated on. So I could be over here and I could be like, man, I just need this thing about my life to change. Or I just, man, I'm worried, I'm stressing about this. And the highs and lows of my life to God, they look like this. And they're just kind of moving like that. And he's like, look, I want you to be up here. I have so much for you. But all you can think about is when I'm here, God is amazing. When I'm here, God is just, where are you? What's going on? What are you doing? And he's like, that's nothing compared to what I have for you all the way up here. And so, uh, in a few verses, he's going to say, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Basically, he's saying, you want bread? You want manna? What, what that, that's not going to be enough for you. That's not going to satisfy the great needs that you have. You need so much more than that. I'm offering you true bread that gives you true life. If your life doesn't have that, it's not true life. It's not what I designed you for. It's fake life. Jesus is looking at your life, lived apart from him, and he's calling it fake. It's, maybe we're starting to see why he wasn't always the most popular with everybody, all the different crowds. Uh, we have far more need than we realize. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? Does that seem possible or true to you? Could you possibly imagine that the things that dominate your mind, your thoughts in any given week are so... It's not, I'm not saying God doesn't care about them. But in terms of their importance, they're so trivial to God compared to all the things that he would want for you. The most daunting obstacles. And so I just want to ask you, what are the major areas where you're lacking or hurting in your life? What are those dominant things and forces in your mind each week? Could you imagine that when God looks at you, those aren't the major needs that he sees? that he recognizes those and cares about how they affect you, but that there are much greater needs he sees that aren't even on your radar. And that's, I think, where this narrative starts. And John, the author, continues from there. So point two, he moves on from, we have way more needs than we realize, 
to number two, Jesus is the only solution to our needs. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the, Lord give, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's a couple things going on here. The idea here is that without Jesus, our needs are so great, he looks at us and saying, that's not true life, that's fake life. Another way that the Bible talks about that is being spiritually dead dead in our sin, dead to God in the sense that we're so far from what he created us for, so far from what life is. And so to God, it's not life at all. But Jesus came to us to gather us to himself and to give us eternal life. And how does he do that? He says here he does it by giving us himself. This bread from heaven that he came to give, he said, I am the bread of life. He is that bread himself. And so he's talking about a relationship with him. He is not a bread of life, right? He's the bread of life. And so if you think about that, that's a pretty bold statement for someone to make. Now, for God, it's true and it's not bold. But for anybody who looks like a person, looks like a human, to say that is like a very, very uh, big, arrogant statement that they can make, right? And so this, this passage is just going to build with this tension that, uh, Jesus is just, what he's saying is going to make people angrier and angrier at him or harder and harder to accept um, what he's saying. So we can ask, why is there no other bread of life? Why is it that Jesus is the bread of life? Uh, and why is Jesus the only option for true life that God designed us for? Well, we can look at what Jesus says the bread of life does. Whoever has it, he says, shall never hunger, shall never thirst. Once you have this bread, you stop looking. You don't keep looking for more bread. You're not looking for more forms or ways that you can be satisfied. And so all of the other things that we go to in life, they can satisfy us for a little while, but that satisfaction will never last. It will never be enough. What Jesus is saying is that God created you the way that he created you. He designed you to know and be in a relationship with him. And so I think it's kind of like, I don't know if I'm like, we just had Valentine's Day this last week. And so I don't know if you've ever kind of heard someone say this about like, you know, until we find like our soulmate or whoever it is, like we're like part of a whole. But then once we find them, like we're complete and we're whole. And it's like, that's very cute. That's very great. It's a little bit insulting to the rest of us who, you know, are just parts apparently in your narrative. But that's like a little bit of what Jesus is saying is that the way that he made you until you find your way back to him, you're always just at best a part. It's never complete. It's never right. You're never going to be the way that he created you. You're never going to be to have the true life, that the real life that he made you for in your life is always going to be, in his mind, fake. And so we can ask, where are you looking for life? If Jesus is the bread of life, then where in your life are you looking for, for life? Where are you looking for joy, for satisfaction, for, for these things that are going to make your life good, great, worth living, because what he's saying is that whatever satisfaction you can find is not going to last, and it's not going to be complete. 
But only until you, until you come and find Jesus, that's, that's going to be the ultimate bread of life, the ultimate uh, uh, meeting, satisfying of, of your hunger. And so it's like Jesus is looking at your life and he's saying, aren't you tired of living that way? As, as he sees us go to, you know, you can see all the different things we go to again and again. Um, I, man, I have so many examples from my life of just, uh, my roommate teases me. He calls, he, every once in a while he'll catch me, you know, up at night and he'll just be like, Rob, you're joylessly playing video games again. Because, like, I don't see my face, but he sees my face and I'm just like... Like, it's like, that's not, that doesn't look like what you were made for. I'm not, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's wrong, but just at a certain point, I think it's gone on a little bit too long or something. Aren't you tired of living that way? Where are the, the joyless hunts for satisfaction in your life? Where is, is the hunger just running rampant as you're just craving, trying to eat more and more, and yet it's never enough because you don't have the bread of life, or at the very least, you're not living into and for and experiencing the bread of life. So yeah, I want to close with that, that point, with that question of just what are the lengths that you go through looking for satisfaction when there's only one bread of life? And that's something else for us to reflect on. That brings us to point number three, which is this. We are way too good at dismissing Jesus. We are way too good at dismissing Jesus. It's something we should be bad at, not skilled at. Verse 41, so the Jews, in response to everything Jesus is saying, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This seemingly arrogant statement. Verse 42, they said, all right, hold on. Who is this guy? That's not what it says. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? He's grown up among us. We've seen him. Some of us might be older than him. Well, who is he to say that he has come down from heaven? And so they're having trouble accepting what Jesus is saying. And so next, Jesus speaks to that. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And so he's kind of coming back to and doubling down on this, and also speaking to this pushback they have, which is, and is that, you know, who is Jesus? Why, why is he, you know... Why is he saying he came from heaven when we see him? And I can sympathize, on the one hand, I can sympathize with that, right? I see that and I think about what he's saying. I try to picture myself there and it's like, yeah, like that would be an audacious claim and that would seem, you know, pretty crazy. But then on the other hand, they did just see him do at least one miracle. And then the text also kind of implies that they realize that he somehow got across the lake without a boat and they don't know how. And so that implies something else maybe afoot for their perspective. Um, but at the very least, they saw him do one miracle, right, and, and feed this massive crowd. And that's why they're seeking him, because they want him to do something like that again, right? And they're referencing like manna, because they, that's just clearly, they know it was a miracle. They know it was miraculous. And so on the, on the other hand, it's like, well, at the very least, that should just tell you like, okay, maybe there's, I should at least find out how, right? Like I would at least want to know how, how, how did this guy do it? I want to know. I want to know how you did that, who you are, but instead they're grumbling about him and they're saying, man, who is this guy, right? 
And I just think that's, they're, they're very quick to dismiss the glorious work that they've just seen Jesus do. <laughs> and so, yeah, so he's, he's performed these miracles, and so Jesus responds by identifying something about our nature, right? And what does he say? He says, uh, we don't naturally come to God. He says, unless, uh, no one comes to the Father unless he draws them. And so our hearts, in a nutshell, have become broken and warped by sin. All of the ways that we rebel against God and, and rebel against what he's designed us for, the life that he's designed us to live. And so the natural movement of our life is away from God, right? And we're very quick then to dismiss God because our sin and our hearts are moving us away from him and it plays out in different ways, right? How, does our, how do our hearts move us away from God and keep us from coming to him and experiencing the bread of life. Uh, some things I put down, non-comprehensive lists off the top of my head, one big one is shame. That's a huge one for me as I just feel shame about various things in my life. Some of it's sin. Some of it's just things that it's not sin. It's just stuff that I'm ashamed of, like maybe failure or, or something like that. And, and these things can uh, pull us away from God as we just allow it to kind of whirl us around in this cycle where we just you know feel ashamed and then do more things to remedy that and then feel even more ashamed and, and it just keeps us away from him and and when jesus shows up the bible talks about like don't shriek back from him in shame because of the gospel because of what he's done for you but shame is something that is trying to pull us away from him another one is doubt uh and it's something that doubt is it's different from like a healthy a healthy skepticism that says i, I want to see good reason and that sort of stuff, the way that I think about doubt is doubt is like, you've given me every reason to believe, and yet I still won't. You've given me every reason to, to trust this, and yet I still won't. And, and that's a little bit ridiculous. Like if somebody were to doubt that a chair will hold them suddenly after it's been doing it for over and over and over and over and over again, it's like that's not a very well-founded doubt. And yet we have this incredible double standard when it comes to our God because he's proven himself to us over and over and over again. And yet, and, and, and throughout Scripture, all of these testimonies to who God is, and yet, it's so easy for us to doubt Him. Amen? To doubt His promises, to doubt the things that He says, that He's here in our lives, that He's good, that He is active and working uh, in us and for us, and all of these things. Another one is distraction. I don't really feel like I need to say much about this because we live in America. Amen? Like, distraction. Great. All right. Next one is anger, right? We can be angry at God or angry at others, and that anger is... God can have a righteous anger, but when we hang on to our anger and, and continue to let it stew and develop into a bitterness and maybe even to a hate, that is not something that defines our God. And that is then something that separates us from our God. It makes it hard for us to connect with him if we hang on to that. And so there's uh, this verse in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus shares of, if you're going to come to the altar, like, but you still are, you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, like, you should resolve that first because that anger that either of you have is going to disrupt your, your vertical fellowship with God. Um, two, two last ones. One is fear. Um, <clears throat> again, fear of all sorts of things, but it can lead us, rather than stepping forward into whatever God calls us to, it can lead us to run the other way. You can think about stories like Jonah or Gideon in the Bible of how fear leads them um, turning away or holding back from what God calls them to. And then the last one is pride, which is a lot of these have overlap, and pride is probably in all of them. But it's just to, to make too big of a, of a note of ourselves and think too highly of ourselves and to think too little of God. Whereas the reality is God is you know, incomprehensibly massive and huge and great and we are but a speck right before him. 
And so that is, that is another thing that when, when that, we don't want that, we want to seem bigger, think bigger of ourselves, that can keep us from God. So all of these stand as barriers to us experiencing the true life that Jesus offers us, and we get stuck in them, right? And we can never then move towards God, right? And that's just some examples, but the idea is that when we are stuck and trapped in our sin apart from God, we don't take steps towards God. Our sin pulls us away from God. And what Jesus is saying is that that stubbornness that we have, that dismissiveness that we have towards God, that he, what, what God has to do and does is he draws us to himself, that he works to open our eyes, to, to, to show us who he is, uh, and, and, and in all sorts of wonderful and creative ways to woo us to himself. And so he's, he's doing all of these things always to, to bring us and work, working constantly to draw us nearer and nearer to himself. Uh, and he's calling us to come to him. And so then the question is, how, do we, how can we answer that call? And so look at what Jesus says. He says, everyone who has learned from the Father comes to me. So when we humble ourselves and learn from God's word, then we experience Jesus as the perfect and only solution to our overwhelming need. Right? And when we look to and read what God reveals to us in his word about our sin, about who he is, and trust that, then that is, is a start for the Holy Spirit to be working in us and, and moving us towards him. And, and he's just constantly working in so many ways too. But that's this point that Jesus shares in response to this dismissiveness that the people have, is to say that, look, I understand that you're dismissive. I'm not surprised by that. I understand that you're stubborn, that you don't want to trust me, that you don't want to come to me. I came here knowing that and expecting that. And that kind of leads into uh, this next point we have that what is Jesus' response to our dismissiveness? How does Jesus respond? What did he come to do? And that gets into the craziest part of this passage, or point number four. Uh, point number four is Jesus sacrifices himself to save us, but the crazy part is what he's about to say. Uh, and so I'm going to read it, and if you have no idea what the church is, just hear me out, all right? Just hear me out, because it's going to sound pretty crazy. Jesus, he's continuing to address their grumbling. He says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Then he continues, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So he's saying, stop worrying about literal bread. I have something much greater for you. He's kind of reiterating. He's covered this a little bit. It's true life. He's saying, you need this, but they're so fixated on the bread that they can't hear him. And so Jesus does something next that I think is pretty gangster. Uh, He's teaching all this. He's doing all this in a synagogue, right? Which is kind of like the church of, of their society, basically, so to speak, in some ways. And so he gives them this metaphor. He says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, which I don't know if you could picture someone coming up like, and standing on stage and saying something like that, but it's like, what are you saying? What is that? Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And surely they don't think he's speaking literally because it, it's kind of nonsensical, and we see as we go on that, that what's probably going on is they're arguing about what he means or frustrated because the metaphor itself is, is kind of frustrating even if you know it's a metaphor, Right? And so the tension in the room skyrockets, right? And so what does Jesus do? Well, he continues and he escalates it even more. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, right? And that's a profound statement. We're going to unpack it 
But if you have no context, right, that's not the first verse I'd probably point someone to who doesn't know anything about Christianity. It's something I was pointing out. I didn't get much traction. I feel like I'm not getting it now, so I'm still going to say it anyway. It just, to me, it's a crazy verse. It's like, what are you saying? Like, that, what is, what is this about? Is this a cult? What's going on here, right? So, unless, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, all these things he's saying about the true bread that comes from heaven, that he comes to give them, and he's saying, I am this bread, it's all great, but then he brings it all the way even further to this metaphor, right? And this, this crazy wild metaphor where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What? What is that? Of the Son of Man, he says. So, he says this in the synagogue where they teach from the Bible. It's like a church. Just imagine that. Like if you can take off your Christian goggles and just look at this like anyone else in the world would look at this. That's a crazy thing to say. Even if you understand it's a metaphor, it's still a crazy metaphor to make. Because what do you possibly mean by that, right? And why would you say it that way? Um, and so like all the commentators who talk about this passage, right? They talk about how the blood part, drink my blood, would have been especially abhorrent to the Jews because like drinking blood was like not a thing at all in their culture. And my response to that is like, yeah. And who is it? Like, what, what are you saying? Like, is that something that's normal to you? Like, I don't get that. So I think it's pretty abhorrent to everybody, honestly, in terms of like, what a crazy graphic image. What is he talking about? And so first, what does Jesus mean? Well, you can't read this and not consider the Lord's Supper, which I look around the room and think most of us at the very least are familiar with. We call it communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so all these events occur around the time of the Passover feast and then also the Lord's Supper later on in Jesus' ministry right before his, his crucifixion. Uh, also, he has at, at the time of the Passover, he has the Lord's Supper where he, he sits down with his disciples and, and they eat and he says, this, this, is, uh, this bread is my body. Something like, this bread is my body broken for you, this, this wine is my blood poured out for you, right? And so we, we hear that, we look at this, we're like, all right, those are very similar, right? This is, seems to be like what he's talking about. Uh, and then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and so then he gives that practice to communion um, as a symbolic reminder of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, right? So just a couple thoughts on that. Neither Jesus nor John the author explicitly mention the Lord's Supper. So there's some debate, you know, as I've had to read several commentaries about, you know, how do you interpret this? What is he talking about here? Uh, and so some thoughts on that. Uh, communion is, uh, okay, so neither Jesus nor John explicitly mention the Lord's Supper, and that scene doesn't appear in John's Gospel. Uh, and so at the very least, we have to say John isn't explicitly talking about that, right? Uh, then we also have to consider that communion is given to remember Jesus' death, but here Jesus is talking about having life, right? And so there's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, still a lot of similarities. And then we also see that communion is not a prerequisite for salvation, and yet here it's very, it seems that way. It's very tied to uh, you, you do this and you have life, but if you don't do this, then you don't have life. <clears throat> and so it seems from these things that 
the Lord's Supper is more likely a secondary connection that John has in mind, because I don't think there's any way that John writes this and doesn't think about that, but that that might not be the primary thing he's going here since he's not more explicitly saying anything about that. Not saying it's unrelated, but just that that's a secondary uh, connection that we can make. It seems like the more primary connection would be that Jesus is using this metaphor to refer to his life and his death. So the body and the blood symbolize his whole person, and the eating that he talks about in verse 54 is parallel to the believing he talks about in verse 40, in which he says both of these lead to Jesus raising you up on the last day. All right, he says a very like a parallel verse, but in one he says believing, and the other says eating. And so it seems like this eating is talking about uh, something similar to believing and on the whole person of Jesus. But then we can ask, okay, well, um, what is Jesus doing with his metaphor? And so I see Jesus using this metaphor <clears throat> to directly imply two things. One, something about our relationship with Jesus <clears throat> resembles our relationship with food. I think that's, you know, he, he explicitly mentions that, right? And so <clears throat> we need him like we need food, so we should hunger for time with him. And it reminds me of this uh, time where I was living with Jared, who sometimes plays the keys, and I was uh, on this diet doing intermittent fasting <clears throat> and losing a lot of weight. And uh, the first meal I would eat every day was at 11 a.m. And so that was the highlight of the day, <coughs> every single day for me. I would come dancing in the kitchen. It was like, you know, it was a whole thing. Uh, <coughs> because that's how hungry I was, right? That's how our relationship with Jesus should be. We should hunger for him. The longer we are away from him, we should feel that. We should feel hunger. The second thing uh, is that Jesus is going to sacrifice himself to give us life. And that's clearly what he's implying here as he talks about blood, as it's associated with death, and as he's talking about his body and his blood poured out and these sorts of things, and that we're profiting off of that. (coughs) That Jesus... um, yeah, it's suggesting that it's going to be his death for our life. <clears throat> Excuse me. So why does Jesus say this? Why this metaphor? <clears throat> and if this is the perfect metaphor, why say it the way that he does? It's like he's trying to be offensive. And I think that's the answer right there. That <clears throat> as Jesus is talking to a dismissive group of Jews who aren't accepting him, uh, he, he shares this to provoke, to provoke them into having to wrestle with who he is and to not forget who he's claiming to be. And so, uh, and that brings us then uh, to, to this final point we have, point five, which is that true life hangs on whether you can stomach that sacrifice. <clears throat> oh, good, we got some water. Thank you. <coughs> got to start getting some lozenges or something. <clears throat> All right. Much better. Thank you. You will certainly not lose your reward. It's, it's a verse. Uh, <laughs> all right, verse 60. <laughs> when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And the answer is kind of like, obviously. So I think Jesus is he's really just piling it on here. And then he says, verse 62, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And now he's just pouring it on because he's talking about himself as God, which is the thing that always offends you know, in all these stories, his listeners. <clears throat> and so he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. <clears throat> he says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That is to say, <clears throat> not literal, but incredibly important. 
But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those, uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, <clears throat> for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, uh, we're on our, our last leg here. John describes two responses and gives a warning, and we're done. So, first uh, response. Many of Jesus' followers walk away uh, because what Jesus was saying <clears throat> was obviously... While it was obviously not literal, it was very hard for them to imagine um, any positive thing in their eyes of what he was using it for, right? At the very uh, least, he was making himself God, which was incredibly offensive to them, saying he was like God, associated with the Father. And so the language of the metaphor, as well as what Jesus is using to say, are too much for them. And so we can just look at this and say, if only they could have grasped a little bit more of their overwhelming need, if only they could have grasped a little bit more of Jesus' true identity, then uh, that just would have been completely changed the way they would have responded. Sorry. And, uh, and so it just, I think there's, there's a sign to us by this that we can be like those people where when we come up against the hard sayings, <clears throat> sayings of Jesus, we can be blinded by our pride, by the things we're distracted by, and all these other things that can lead us to be overly dismissive of him. <clears throat> and that plays out not just for non-Christians, but also in the Christian life, that when Jesus calls us to harder things, we can be um, find ways to reshape that call or, or dismiss it <clears throat> so that we don't grow closer to him. <clears throat> so then the second uh, response is Peter's, and it's this. Having experienced the life <clears throat> that comes through knowing Jesus, where else could I go? That's Peter's response, right? There's nothing else for me. He could have fixated on the hard teachings of Jesus and got angry and stormed off, but he remembered everything he'd seen Jesus do and everything he'd heard him say. And so John is showing us that no matter how difficult it becomes at any point in our life for us to follow Jesus, what is absolutely important, what is critical, is that we remember who he is and what he's done for us, and that we rest in that and, and use that to interpret any present situation in our life. Because that's what Peter does, and that's what keeps him at Jesus' side. He says, you have the words of life. Where else could I go? There's no other source of life for me. And so it just seems like he gets it. He's nailing it. It's reminiscent of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 8.3, where he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. <clears throat> and so we find, <clears throat> excuse me, we find the right path, the path to God, by desperation, by remembering that there's no other source of life. And so that brings us finally to the warning. Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And so here devil refers to Satan, and also it describes an adversary of Jesus. And John identifies Judas as that adversary. And so at this point, the disciples don't know that. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a warning to them that Jesus is giving that just because you're close to me, just because you're close... Um, doesn't mean that you are experiencing the bread of life. And that's what I want to leave us with today, is that don't assume that God just is calling you to a Christian life where you show up to church, show up to Bible studies, whatever it is. He's calling you to true life in himself. 
And that is a lifelong journey that he always has so much more in store for you and so much greater things planned for you. And so I just think John is, is encouraging us now to not be distracted by things that we get fixated on in our lives, you know, the highs and lows of our life that to God they just look like this, where he just, he's calling us to be up here with him to a much loftier place. And even though it's, surely it's going to be hard for you to find that communion with God, for you to overcome those sin barriers that lead us to dismiss Jesus and just live our life about other things, that John is saying it's worth it to hang in there, no matter how difficult it gets, to remember who he is and what he's calling you to, and that there are much greater things in store for you. And so in a minute here, we're going to take communion, which as we talked about is God's body broken for us, his blood shed for us. This is an outward symbol of an inward reality, <clears throat> that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Right, And that's uh, what so much of what this metaphor is about, is that Jesus is directly referring to this sacrifice that he's going to make on the cross for us. <clears throat> he died so that we could live. And so I just want to invite you to reflect on this message and, and on what Jesus is calling you to in, in your life and what he wants, uh, yeah, what he wants you to bring to him today. Uh, let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your son and his, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And I just, Lord, I ask that you would uh, lead us to you today. Uh, help us to experience and find that true life in you. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to know that just how worth it that is and that we wouldn't uh, hold back from that or get distracted from that or be too afraid or ashamed to go down that road. Uh, Lord, the path to you is not easy, but it is so worth it. It is a good path. I just pray that you would help us to uh, find the strength and the courage to walk that path today. In your name, amen.